The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. Thanks and welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. If you've read a few books on Civil War battles, you probably know how they get written. The author reads the secondary literature, then delves into the primary sources, those first-hand accounts in the letters and journals and after-action reports and so on. And the diligent author then ground truths his or her manuscript by walking the battlefield to see what the soldiers saw. And then we're done. But wait, there's one place writers haven't looked at, at least not in most cases, and that's under the ground. To find out what's there, we'll talk with Professor Emeritus Larry Babbitts, co-editor of From These Honored Dead, Historical Archaeology of the American Civil War, tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. It is a cold Wednesday evening in January, the first show of the year 2015. Happy New Year, everyone. We're coming to you, as usual, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, but not speaking for the university or its history department or its College of Arts and Sciences or anybody else, just myself. Likewise, our guest will do the same. And with those legal niceties out of the way, we 
are back after the holiday break. It's good to be back with a new live show, a new guest, and uh, a chance to recover from the overeating and oversleeping and everything else for the holidays. It was the holiday that saw the first historic college football playoff, and as a Wolverine, I found it an awkward experience to be cheering loudly for the Ohio State Buckeyes as they upheld the honor of the Big Ten in winning the national championship this year, uh, proving that the Big Ten is not past its prime as a football conference. Uh, I'm a little frightened to imagine uh, the Wolverines playing the Buckeyes, but we did get a new coach, and everybody's happy about that up in Ann Arbor, and we'll see how that goes. Down here in Greenville, North Carolina, the Pirates are apparently going to lose their very talented young offensive coordinator to some uh, giant school somewhere, Oklahoma, I think. Uh, Well, he deserves the opportunity, and uh, I'm sure the Pirates will carry on, uh, but they've benefited from his presence. Uh, Enough talk about that uh, as we return to campus The usual academic politics continue to swirl about the place. We're remembering now fondly here in the history department the good old days 15 years ago when the dean of arts and sciences was an English professor committed to the liberal arts, uh, so much so that the professional schools grew jealous and eventually they Uh, When he retired, they replaced him with someone who was not a humanities person. They got a biology professor to step in. But that dean of the College of Arts and Sciences proved equally committed to the liberal arts. So the uh, professional schools pushed him out and replaced uh, him with an interim who was from the physics department, even more sciencey. But he too was committed to the liberal arts, and finally they eventually went ahead and hired our current dean, who's a political scientist, and uh, is still waving the flag for us, which is good. But today, we had our first interview for the new provost. I love those old terms, provost and chancellor. Uh, The provost is the chief academic officer on campus, and for the past several years has been someone from the College of Education, not someone from a... a content field uh, from one of the the classic disciplines of the university. And when I saw today for the first time the the resumes of the candidates for the new job, I won't mention their names because they might, uh, their bosses might not know they're out job hunting, but I'll just say that the person who gave the presentation today uh, has a, a PhD in sports management and the others have degrees in things like forced economics and health education, scarcely a traditional liberal arts scholar among them, except our current interim, who's a geographer. Well, we'll see what happens. Uh, You never know. People turn out differently when they get jobs. Hopefully, we will continue to see the basic liberal arts upheld here at East Carolina as at other schools. Enough academic talk. That's not why you tuned in. Before we get to the content, though, I do want to uh, say uh, a note of uh, farewell. Uh, I learned this week of the death of John Hill, somebody I never met. And uh, listeners, if you read a lot of Civil War, you may never have read anything of his. But John Hill was a game designer 
designed a, a game called Squad Leader in the 1970s that is still played around the world, and for our perspective, designed a set of rules to play battles with Civil War miniatures or toy soldiers, a set of rules called Johnny Reb that have been played for decades and uh, helped a lot of people learn about the Civil War and enjoy studying the past through the mechanism of the game table. And uh, John Hill died of a heart attack quite suddenly this past week and uh, will certainly be missed. Well, let's look forward and not past. Coming up uh, tonight, we have a, a very just eye-opening book uh, for me, something from a discipline outside my own that I really learned a lot from, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But I'll let you know it's coming up next week. Mark Christ will be with us to talk about the Civil War in Arkansas. Uh, he's uh, from there and is an expert in that area and has written Civil War, Arkansas, 1863, The Battle for a State. On January 28th, the week after that, Evan Jones will join us. He's the co-editor of Gateway to the Confederacy, New Perspectives on the Chickamauga and Chattanooga Campaigns. That is a, a book that I was invited to contribute an essay to and happy to have done that. Uh, worked with Evan, but never met him, so I'm looking forward to getting a chance to uh, talk to him on the show tonight. Not tonight, rather, on the 28th. After that, by popular demand, you have spoken, listeners, and you want to hear from Anna Heider and Julia Heider, authors of Badass Civil War Beards, and we'll learn about facial hair in the 1860s. From there, on February 11th, the day before Lincoln's birthday, we have David S. Reynolds, editor of Lincoln's Selected Writings, and then on the 18th, David Powell joins us to talk more about Chattanooga and Chickamauga. Well, Chickamauga in particular. He also contributed to Evan Jones' volume, but he's got his own book on, or set of books on the Chickamauga uh, campaign and battle uh, and is establishing himself as the leading expert on that. Should be interesting. On the 25th, Aaron Astor, writing about the war in the Cumberland Plateau. On March 4th, I haven't asked him yet, so he'll be surprised if he's listening, but uh, John Fox will be invited, hopefully, to join us to talk about Stewart's ride around the Army of the Potomac. They just uh, He was kind enough to send me his book, and it just arrived today. I've got to get a formal invite out, but I hope we can schedule that. And that'll take us to spring break. We'll talk more about other things later. Uh, you can buy all those books from impediments from, from clicking on the Amazon link at impedimentsofwar.org where Mark Gaffney tells us what's coming up on the show. We're still on the holiday break there, but we'll get caught up shortly, I'm sure. You can also donate to the Civil War Book Fund. Many thanks to those of you who did so. If you did that in 2014 and you start doing your taxes, don't put those down as donations, as, as tax-deductible contributions, or you'll go to jail. Uh, maybe I'll go to jail, too. I don't know. I've, I've tried to tell you over and over, it's not tax-deductible. It's just for my personal whim, uh, but often used to buy the books that you hear about on the show, and uh, the donations are certainly much appreciated. I'll admit I did use them once to buy uh, John Hill's new Civil War miniature battle rules uh, across a deadly field, so uh, you know, close enough to a book. And finally, uh, since some people asked uh, last summer and the summer before that, I had the pleasure of going on uh, as the 
historian, uh, guide with Matterhorn tours, Matterhorn travels on their uh, hallowed ground Civil War tour. Ken Block, the owner of Matterhorn, has decided to retire, but his business has been taken up by Stephen Ambrose historical tours of New Orleans. Uh, you all know who Stephen Ambrose is, of course, the late uh, famous historian, mostly wrote on the uh, Second World War, but also uh, 19th century topics on occasion. Uh, the Ambrose Company is going to conduct the same tours, including the uh, Hallowed Ground Tour. So I will be uh, going on that uh, with any of you who care to join me, May 24th through May 31. Uh, I get paid the same either way. This is not a commercial for my benefit, but uh, they are really interesting tours. And I find I look forward to them every year. doesn't matter that I've seen these places before. There's There's always something new to see and if you only have a week to concentrate a bunch of battlefields into your year's travels this is a good way uh, to see a lot in Virginia and Maryland and Pennsylvania so Stephen Ambrose historical tours is where to go to find out about the uh, hallowed ground tour of 2015 long enough talking let's talk to our guest uh, our guest tonight Lawrence E. Babbitts he is the uh, uh, is Professor Emeritus here at East Carolina University, the former director of the program in Maritime Studies, and the co-editor of From These Honored Dead, Historical Archaeology of the American Civil War. Larry, are you there? Yes, I am. Oh, good Good to hear from you again. How are you doing? Well, Happy New Year. <laughs> happy New Year to you. Uh Larry, you and I worked together for many years uh, here at ECU. It seemed, uh, and and you retired. I want to say last year, but it's been longer than that. It was in uh, 2012. Okay, a couple of years now. It it, it seems right. like I could just go over to Eller House and you'd still be there. It actually, I will be. Yeah, I called over there once and said, do you guys ever see Larry? Said, oh, yeah, we see him. Uh, but they were laughing. Uh, but, yes, you and I uh, worked together closely. You were director of the Maritime Program. Uh, this is my last semester as uh, department chair. I'm going to go back to just teaching and writing. And I'm looking forward to putting aside the administration. I'm, I'm guessing you missed those meetings and strategic reports and all the other things we had to do. Uh, just a little. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> uh, they 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 don't really come up in my agenda anymore. So it's freed up a little bit more time to take naps. Uh, very important. Uh, some, something absolutely to look forward to. So uh, let me start with a quick retirement question. Everybody I talk to who is retired says they are busier than when they were working. Uh, is that true? I, th I think it probably is true, uh, that, but there's a caveat there. Most of the people who uh, are, are busy in retirement are people who already had an agenda that they were working on, and they just carried it out into retirement. Uh, there were several people who used to work out at the rec center at the same time that uh, I did, and when there must have been three or four of them who uh, retired didn't have a plan or anything, and within six months, they just keeled over. I, it must have been uh, 
frustration at not going to those meetings or something. But the 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 thing that happens is the lack of 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 having to go to meetings gives you more time to make more commitments to do stuff you really like, and that in turn makes you a lot more busy because you thought you had the time to do it. You know, I I just got a uh, invitation from Wade Dudley, one of our colleagues here, uh, to go look at the fortifications at Blue Banks. Uh, I think he said you were going to be going along on that. Yeah, possibly. Uh, he he uh, got so, me going down to uh, Wise's Forks, and we're coming up on the in about two months, less than two months. We're coming up on the 150th anniversary of the fight there. I saw there's a book coming out, and I. I I'm blanking on, on even which publisher has it, but I'll, I'll, I'll find out and have that author on the show. The, the, Wise Forks is not a well-known battle, but it's right in our backyard here in, in eastern North Carolina. And, and it was a lot bigger than I thought it was. Uh, uh, we were down there and had uh, a guide who had collected on the battlefield for probably 40 years said that he'd recovered over 30,000 bullets and other artifacts from the fields of Wise's Forks. And this is on a battlefield that I didn't know anything about. And it was a, basically a three-day fight that uh, to block um, the Federals coming from the coast from joining up with Sherman. And it, it's a, probably the only battle in the... In the, uh, in the Confederate side of the Civil War, where you have men from two different armies, whole units from those armies fighting against the, uh, the other side, because there was a division from the Army of Northern Virginia, and there was a division uh, of what was left of a division from the Army of Tennessee. Interesting. Well, I'm definitely looking forward to reading more about that and getting down and looking uh, at at the battlefield, at the area. I know I've driven you know, through it, but uh, it, it's not heavily marked. We'll have to go see again. Now, you said something interesting about uh, a collector sharing information with you, and we're going to take a break in just a minute, so I, I just want to set this up, and then we'll we'll have a break and come back and talk about it. But what little I know of archaeology uh, and what I learned when I worked in a museum and we bought artifacts from uh, sources was that you had to be really careful about reputable uh, acquisition of artifacts and that collectors who just scoured battlefields and picked up artifacts willy-nilly without recording them were were the bane of true archaeologists. They were the devil's spawn. They ruined it for real science. Uh, but now you say you had you know, you're learning things from, from people at Wise Forks and elsewhere. Uh, am I on the right track that something has changed in the relationship of archaeologists and collectors? Uh, it, well, aside from the, the extreme elements on both sides of it, uh, there's been a, a meeting over the common subject of, of the war and uh, the uh, not so much... Uh, for a lot of people, the material culture, but for archaeologists and uh, relic hunters who uh, want to place these things in a context that makes sense, uh, they have a lot in common. And when an archaeologist comes into an area, he's coming in on an assignment uh, for clearing a roadway or a property that's going to be developed or something, 
and he's he may have looked at the site for a week and right there in the backyard of the site are two or three people who have been collecting it for you know 20 or 30 years and have researched every aspect of it imaginable So it makes sense for those two sides to listen to each other. Right. We're going to take a short break. I'm going to cut you off, and we'll come right back in just a minute. We're talking today with Larry Babbitts, author or co-editor, I should say, from These Honored Dead, Historical Archaeology of the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Larry Babbitts. He's co-editor of the volume From These Honored Dead, Historical Archaeology of the American Civil War. It is a fascinating collection of essays and articles, uh, primarily by archaeologists who have looked at different battlefields or campsites or other uh, areas related to the war and investigated them from the archaeological uh, standpoint. Larry, when we took the break there, we were talking about collectors, and you pointed out that uh, there's a great deal to be learned if if, uh, local collectors have been uh, studying the battlefield in their backyard and and collecting artifacts from it for 30 years. It makes sense for archaeologists and historians, I would guess, to, to pay attention to what they know. Absolutely. For for one reason is they know the landscape, and in their hunting, they've uh, uncovered things about the landscape that are not there now, but were there and impacted the battlefield in the past. 
And that's a, a kind of insight that's very hard to come by from looking at maps and reading books. The uh, you, I'm going to talk about terrain analysis uh, as well. I want to get to that in a moment. But I got a really interesting email uh, a couple months ago, actually before we'd even scheduled this or put it up on the, the, the list of shows to do, uh, from a... Uh, a, a colonel in the R- U.S. Army currently serving in Europe who does metal detection uh, as a vocation and as an uh, avocation. I always get those mixed up as a hobby uh, and has studied uh, World War I battlefields and, and learned things from them. And he asked about the issue of metal detection as a technique uh, your book here indicates that this was something archaeologists used to not do, and now they're doing it. What? Why didn't? Why didn't they not? Why did they not do it? And what has changed their minds? Well, there are two aspects of why they weren't doing it. One is that battlefield archaeology uh, wasn't really looked at except as recording fortifications, and the other one was that. Uh, the use of a, of a metal detector it had a bad reputation because people were collecting stuff and selling it. and th- It sort of grew out of uh, the ready availability of metal detectors or mine detectors from World War II. And I found in soldier memoirs from World War II guys who took their, their units, mine detectors, and went through German backyards looking for buried... Uh, materials that they were trying to keep away from the uh, victorious troops coming through. But it all came to an end, I guess, for uh, most of the archaeologists interested in battlefields, and especially the Civil War, when Doug Scott uh, and Richard Fox had the opportunity to use metal detectors on the Little Bighorn battlefield back in the late 80s. And the fact that they were able to use forensic techniques on the uh, shell casings from the Indian and the uh, cavalry weaponry was, and showed that there were patterns. And by collecting, they had collected all these things and put them into real space with what they were. And these patterns emerged that showed that there were tactical use of these weapons. They could trace weapons moving across the battlefield. And interestingly enough, as they commented, well, this one was found, the bullets from this were found over here, but then the shell cases were found moving across the battlefield. We don't know if it was an Indian or a soldier who was uh, shooting the weapon at certain stages, but it is an interesting comment on the the minutiae that you could come up with. So you could trace a bullet to an individual gun, is that right? Uh, you can't trace the bullets to individual guns from uh, probably in most of the 19th century and earlier weaponry, and that's because the lead uh, uh, doesn't retain the rifling signature well enough to for forensics. But the shell cases that were brass uh, and in some cases copper did show firing pin and extractor signatures and those uh, lasted a lot longer and they've been able to identify museum pieces now that were used at the Little Bighorn. Okay, so you, you can trace the weapon by the, the shell casing rather than the right. projectile. And and with the Little Bighorn, of course, since 
there were no definitive written records of what happened, uh, this was the only way to, to really resolve some of the mysteries about that battle. And, and so that, that, was the, that was the big moment. That, that got archaeologists saying that this is a respectable and valuable technique. Yes, uh, and the, the really interesting thing about that now is that we have moved to show that uh, percussion caps that were used on Civil War weaponry can at least be used to identify the type of weapon, whether it was an Enfield rifle or a Springfield rifle or a Maynard or a Smith carbine or uh, any number of smaller weapons. And they, they've applied this in the 1850s and uh, on Apache Indian versus cavalry sites and found out that this works very well. So it's a logical carryover to it. Now, let me ask this sort of in general terms, because uh, I know you've written about Revolutionary War battles at uh, the Cowpens and uh, at, at Guilford Courthouse and used some of these techniques. So I'm going to guess the same ones would apply to Civil War battles to some extent. How, how do the forensics work? Like, supposedly you can find, you can say a unit was here and not there based on what you find. What do you look for and what... What, what does it prove? Well, let me give you a, a Civil War example. It's a, mm -hmm. a, a really interesting one. There was a graduate student at Maryland who was employed by the Park Service uh, as sort of a, a super internship, and he was working on the Confederate left flank uh, for the f f First Battle of Manassas. And this is where... Uh, uh, the people down in the hollow looked up and saw Jackson standing like a stone wall. But the period immediately before that, before B. Bartow and Evans had their trouble, uh, there was an engagement further up. And in the past, it was all written up as, well, Burnside moved his brigade down the Sudley Springs Road toward the stone house. And there was a little skirmishing there. Well, Matt went out, and they did shovel testing over the entire area, and I think they put in a couple of weeks of digging, and they found three or four artifacts that could be related to the battlefield. And then he brought in the Northern Virginia Relic Hunters Association. I think that was the group. And in a week, they came up with uh, close to uh, 1,500 artifacts. And, again, this is something that everybody is starting to come to grips with, that shovel test pits do not tell you anything about battlefields. But as it worked out, one of Burnside's units was armed with uh, uh, 6.9 caliber smoothbores. Another one was armed with 58 caliber rifled muskets. And their opponents, who happened to be the Louisiana Tigers, uh, were armed with Mississippi rifles, as I think it was. But where the bullets were dropped, either because they wouldn't go down the barrel or because somebody fumbled and, and dropped it, defined fighting lines. And then you could see who they were fighting by other battle lines where the 54 caliber bullets were being found impacted into the ground or uh, where they had dropped after they'd fl uh, flown as far as they were going to go. And these three different types of weapons uh, were distinctive unit signatures on the day. And when you looked at them then, and then you started piecing it together, it turned out that, whoa, there were uh, 
buttons from Louisiana, and there were buttons, federal buttons from a different state that were associated with the various fighting lines. And then it turns out there was one cluster of places where all of this was mixed together. It turns out there was a gate there, apparently, in a fence line. And it served as a choke point, and people from both sides lost uh, equipment there. And this was previously just un- totally unknown because nobody had known to ask the right questions because they didn't have the uh, stimulus of this weird conjunction of three different uh, bullet calibers uh, found on three different firing lines and mixed with impacted bullets. So that's the sort of thing that can be done. I'm, I'm fascinated by something you said, and it re- it's repeated in several of the, the essays in this book, that the traditional way of doing archaeology is, is digging a, a pit. And I've, I've gone with our colleague and, and friend Charlie Ewan out to the coast and watched him work with his students uh, digging up colonial sites. And I guess when you're digging up a home site, it makes sense to, to dig up a pit. Everything is all there. But a battlefield is a big place. You can't dig a mile-wide pit to find everything. And digging sample pits or test pits, uh, again and again in this book, it says you find nothing. It, it, so archaeologists, I, w- I wouldn't say they've been doing it wrong, but but it, it's not that's not a useful tool, is it? No. But once you've uh, established the patterns uh, by recording where the metal detector finds are are located, then it may behoove you to go and look for other things that aren't metal. For example, uh, on a Revolutionary War site, this would be once you have done this with the lead bullets and uh, other little pieces of of, uh, soldier's gear like buttons or something, then you want to go along and look and see if there are gun flints, for example, because they wouldn't turn up in the uh, metal detecting thing. And there's a friend of mine uh, who has looked at a battle in uh, Germany, a 1632 battle of Lützen, and he has completely rewritten the history of the battle by doing metal detecting and then from that predicting where certain things were and even predicted where a mass grave should be, and they found it. Well, I mean, it really is just fascinating. The book, to me, shows the intersection of, of two different uh, you know, branches of, of social science, uh, history and historical archaeology here. In one of the essays, for example, I noticed the, the author uh, spelled one general's name wrong and I think one point referred to brigades when they meant regiments and did the kind of things that, that those of us who read a lot of Civil War history, you know, cluck our tongues and go, oh, you know, caught you, there's a mistake, you're not of the blood, you you didn't, you don't know all this stuff in such detail. But this, but these archaeologists who are outside of history in that sense are revealing things that historians haven't thought about. Uh, and you've given examples about how we can get new information on what happens on the battlefield. There's also uh, chapters in here where people look at, at encampments where, where soldiers have set themselves up for a, a season, and, and they find stuff there, too, that, that you just wouldn't expect. Well, the, the place to look for, for artifacts is really the encampments, because when you're uh, living in a certain place and you're preparing food and uh, 
making things or repairing things or getting new things and throwing other things away, that stuff tends to pile up. On a battlefield, the events over in most of the battles in the various parts of the battlefield are over in pretty short order. And so you're looking at a very small, thin section of, of a, a, a big event. But when you look at a campsite, this is going on, and because of the manuals and the standard routines and things, you can say that uh, this this would have been done here on these at various points in the day, and this is the kind of results you got from it. That's something that's possible. And a lot of the people who are doing this uh, have prior military service, or they have extensive reenactor experience, and that's helped too. It's another sort of auxiliary science for historians. The uh, I admit, as I was reading, as I was tempted to just like, I'm going to go out and buy me one of those machines and go down to New Bern and walk on the battlefield. And uh, I, I should hasten to remind all our listeners that you can't do this on someone else's property, and you certainly can't do it on Park Service property uh, unless it's, it's – well, I guess like if, if you were taking students there – could you get permission to do this as an investigation, not taking anything up, just locating it? Yes, we have done that. Uh, I've done it at uh, Cowpens, and I've participated in a, a couple of projects at Guilford Courthouse. Uh, but you know, the, if you're on private property and have permission to be there, uh, it's between you and the landlord and your sense of ethics and responsibility for history. And this is one of the the problems because people are really passionate about uh, the material culture of certain time periods. And in in England now, I've been told by one of the uh, people in the, in the government who's uh, British heritage it, or English heritage who said that in another, well, now it's probably about 12 or 13 years, uh, there won't be anything left to collect above uh, in less than uh, uh, 14 inches, given the depth at which metal detectors work. That's a pretty uh, interesting statement to make from a guy who's in charge of uh, preserving this, but he's aware of the problem. And he made, he made the statement that counterbalances the disappearance of these artifacts, and he says, if you can afford a metal detector, you can afford a GPS and then it's a simple matter of just recording where you found what. And with everybody's iPod and these all these fancy cameras uh, that do GPS, and they can take a picture of the artifact right there where you found it and type in what the number was and where you found it. And all that recording would be done on the, on the spot at the moment. And I think that would alleviate a lot of this missing information that we feel that we're losing. That's a, a yet another fascinating point about the changing technology of this. That uh, uh, one of the the authors in this book makes the point that uh, sometimes folks look at archaeologists and say, "Well, I can dig and I can detect, and I can use GPS and record." And when I'm done, I put my artifact on display uh, where people can see it. Whereas the archaeologist takes it back to the lab and the world never sees it again. So I'm really doing more for history than, than the archaeologist. Uh, 
let's hold on that thought and think about it for a minute. We'll take another short break. I'm talking today with Larry Babbitts, co-editor of From These Honored Dead, Historical Archaeology of the American Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. My guest this evening is Larry Babbitts. He's co-editor, along with Clarence Geyer and Douglas Scott, of the book From These Honored Dead, Historical Archaeology of the American Civil War. It's a collection of uh, essays, articles, uh, site reports, uh, descriptions of things that archaeologists have done on Civil War battlefields and campsites and fortifications. And it's it's like opening a new world, uh, most people listening to the show uh, have read uh, many, maybe dozens, maybe hundreds of Civil War books, and most of them are by historians, professional historians or amateur historians. But to read about what interests us from the viewpoint of a different uh, method of, of, of investigation, from archaeology to, to see what you can learn by a cluster of dropped bullets uh, on a battlefield and what that means about what the men did there. Really an interesting uh, thing to look at. Uh, Larry, let me ask you this question. It's probably one that the, the lay person has asked you before. Thinking of the battlefields, and you can include Revolutionary War battles in this, what's the most interesting thing you've ever found? Ooh. <laughs> uh, 
whatever I happen to be working on at the time uh, is, is, and it's bizarre because it ranges from a pull tab for a Chesterfield or uh, Camel cigarette pack from uh, Tunnel Dick at Stalag Luft 3. That still stays in my mind. But uh, uh, sometimes it's just uh, a button that uh, we found uh, one in uh, in Halifax, North Carolina, that had a USA on it, but above the S was an N, and below it was a C. These had never turned up, but they were Continental Army buttons from the North Carolina Continental Line. And it's interesting that North Carolina was one of the last states to ratify the Constitution, and here they have the only state uh, military buttons from the Revolutionary War that are marked USA, but also marked with the state designation. And that struck me, and it still strikes me. Uh, And you you go and you look at it and you say, well, there's got to be other ones that have done that. We found one up in the New York Highlands that somebody had scratched an NY on their USA button, but it wasn't the same thing. So I guess those are ones, the kind of things that jump out at me. Let me ask a a different question. You started talking about what we can learn from the terrain of battlefields, and this uh, ties in with historical archaeology and with uh, uh, digital studies with GIS. Uh, What, uh, so let me just ask it, what is COCO and what can we learn from it? Ah, okay. COCO is what the, it's COCA. Thank you. K-O-C-O-A, and that's what uh, archaeologists have adapted from a military analytical uh, acronym, which is really, uh, and the, with the military version, it tells you a little bit more about what they, they're interested in, because theirs is, is C-O-K-O-A, or O-C-K-O-A, Aqua which is the first thing you look for is observation in fields of fire. And then you have cover and concealment, and then you're looking at key terrain. But for archaeologists, maybe it's easier to remember as COCO, too. But they uh, they want to look at the key terrain because that doesn't change very much. And so if you all this does is it forces you to look at five elements of the environment and the battle scene that are immediately germane for everybody from a general all the way down to a, a squad leader. So the K is key terrain. What are the right. other initials? What are uh, the other initials then? Uh, K is, is uh, key terrain. Then you have observation and fields of fire. Then you have, well, let's see, K-O-C, cover and concealment. Then you have obstacles, which could be a stream or a swamp, and then you have avenues of approach or withdrawal. So this is what you, what both the general at the time might have unconsciously been looking for, but what archaeologists consciously look for when they look at a battlefield. Right, when they want to make sure they've covered all the bases. So, I mean, something that comes up again in several of these pieces is that you might be uh, looking at a place where you think a battle took place because that's what local tradition says or local relic hunters have found objects in a certain area and you get 
you get various beliefs growing up. First, that this is where the battle happened. Secondly, that this area has been all hunted out. There's nothing more to find there. And several of the articles show that that's not the case. Sometimes you discover the battle wasn't there at all. Well, that that's true. And then uh, you have to look elsewhere. And uh, Chris Espenshade's been pretty good with looking at battles that don't turn up where they're supposed to be. And he also has looked at battlefields that have been hunted out and found that that isn't the case. In fact, at the Camden battlefield for in, in 1780, uh, Jim Legg and Steve Smith have pretty much determined that, yes, it may have been heavily hunted, but uh, we're finding lots of stuff that tells us about the battle. And this is a thing that archaeologists have a hard time coping with, I think, but we're getting better at it, is that after the Battle of uh, Spotsylvania Courthouse and uh, the part of it uh, that was linked with the Wilderness Battlefield, after the armies moved on, the Confederate Ordnance Department picked up 60 tons of lead on the battlefield. Mm. Now, 60 tons of lead translates to 1.92 plus Minier balls. And would that affect the archaeological record? Well, so so they they got hunted out right there on the scene. Well, by the participants. By the participants before they left, they took their stuff with them. Wow. Now I, I need to ask you about one other kind of battlefield or, or archaeological site. At least we haven't talked about it at all, uh, but uh, near to uh, both of our professional lives here at Eller House, uh, underwater archaeology. You have a piece in here. Uh, that, that you contributed to about finding a Confederate cannon at the bottom of the PD River in South Carolina. What are the challenges of underwater archaeology? Well, the PD River was running real fast, and it's pretty murky. And one of the, the gun that we were looking at, and this this is a the common dilemma of almost all historians and archaeologists. As soon as you put something in print, it's wrong. Uh, uh, but it's only partially <laughs> wrong. This cannon had a number on it, and the number on on this Dahlgren, uh, this nine-inch Dahlgren, a common U.S. cannon at the time of the Civil War, uh, was too high up to have been captured at uh, Norfolk when the Confederates got 1,200 guns from the U.S. Navy. So we had to look and see where how where did it come from? And there were only three ships that were captured by the Confederates after this gun was supposedly manufactured. And two of them were in the Trans-Mississippi West. And when they were captured in the Trans-Mississippi West, Vicksburg had already been taken, and the rail system across the the heartland of the Confederacy was shot, at least especially if you're going to move a uh, a four-and-a-half-ton piece of iron across that landscape so that left one other gun and that gun uh, the vessel was one that uh, one of the maritime students at uh, ECU had worked on in the late 1980s and that's the Southfield it's up at Plymouth on the Roanoke River and we knew they had pulled some nine inch Dahlgren's off that vessel but we didn't have the numbers but by the process of elimination we were able to uh, show that the gun came from the south field probably but we had the number wrong on the gun that we read in the murky water of the uh, PD River and so the number was wrong 
but instead of reading a a one, we read a seven. Mm. But on so, the Southfield, the the number was was the one with the one, and it had come from the Southfield. And so from that, we learned a lot about the uh, Confederate rail system. Uh, so in in the essay in the book, it it it's you're still in the middle of the investigation and, and hadn't either corrected the number or or found the Southfield's numbers. But now you're telling me that. Uh, yes, indeed, that, that cannon at the bottom of the P.D. River did come from the USS Southfield. Yes, uh, you have uh, a scoop. Uh, so you heard it here first, folks, yes. on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, speaking of scoops, I got a call earlier this week from a, uh, a gentleman who uh, said he was in his 80s and had some material. He was uh, interested in seeing it go to a good home. It was newspaper articles and photographs and other information related to two Confederate gunboats uh, in the Chattahoochee River near Columbus. And uh, my first thought was to to call your successor, Brad Rogers, and write to him and say, do we know anything about those boats? And so I'm asking you, do you know anything about those? Does that ring a bell for you? Uh, we, we, the Maritime Program, did an investigation of the Chattahoochee back in the 80s. And portions of uh, the other vessel we have studied, too. In fact, one of our, uh, our graduates, Bob Holcomb, wrote his thesis on the evolution of Confederate gunboat, ironclad gunboat design. And that was for the Jackson or the Muskogee. It had one name and then it had the other one. So we, I was familiar with them. And uh, this, this gentleman, Mr. Uh, Weeks, had uh, photographs and he, uh, that I haven't seen of some of these, uh, uh, of these vessels. And I found that really intriguing. So, so you know this guy? I the, talked to him yeah, on the, the phone okay, this yeah, week. He, okay, yeah, he called me, and I, I got him in touch with Brad. Uh, but I guess he called you as well. I've, uh, do we... We don't really collect stuff like that. I mean, we don't have a place to keep it in the department. I, I called the special collections people and told them to get in touch, and maybe you see you can collect it that way. But is it is it good stuff? Uh, yes, I think so. And uh, the interesting thing is some of its duplications of materials that uh, are certainly on file at, uh, at the port of at the port of Columbus Naval Museum in in Georgia. But uh, he had 8-millimeter film that he has transferred to DVDs that show aspects of the Chattahoochee bits and pieces coming up. And they do shed light on uh, part of this, uh, the history of this vessel. And there's uh, also materials that show the uh, ram, the ironclad ram CSS Jackson, when it came out of the water. And that's on display, but there's more to it when you see it uh, right out of the water when there's things on it that uh, have since disappeared. Well, and we, well, we have a, another person who's in his 80s who did the same thing with the ironclad ram CSS Noose, which mm-hmm. is down in, uh, in, in Kinston, Kinston, the hall of yeah. it. And right. they're just about to open a, a new exhibit featuring that, and it is really eerie. I, I've it, walked through there. It is, you're not kidding. It's, it's something, I'm going to have the director on the show uh, sometime maybe maybe next season uh, or later this spring, but you're absolutely right. It's a, it's an amazing sight to see the outline of the casemate 
and the deck and and the other structure on top of the wooden the remnants of the wooden hull is really impressive. Yeah, that that I think they've done a soft opening. I don't know; it's it's officially open to the public, but you can go there. Uh, listeners, if you're passing through Kinston, North Carolina, do not miss the CSS Noose. Um, and don't mistake it for the life-size replica that someone has built on a street corner nearby, uh, which is another curious artifact of eastern North Carolina. Well, Larry, we're just about out of time. Uh, I, I often say to my guests, well, you know, I'd love to continue this, but you and I can go get a cup of coffee next week and uh, talk some more. Uh, this book was really interesting and enlightening for me and will help me work better with the archaeologists in the Maritime Program, so I appreciate your writing it and uh, you know, helping produce it, making it available. And it really, to me, points the way to a new synthesis for, for historians and archaeologists to work together. Well, we could talk more about it over, over uh, a couple of carbines shooting at the range, too. I'd, I'd enjoy that. We'll have to do that. Well, thanks so much for being on the show. Okay, thanks for having me, Jerry. And listeners, thank you as always for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.